Great. Thanks, Annie. If you look on your, uh, you should have one of these, a little handout. Um, we think about the Reformation. Uh, one of the things that uh, we're uh, seeing in these uh, talks in church history, we've only, we've only got time to really just scratch the surface of each little area we're covering. There's so much more uh, to learn. There's so much more to be encouraged by. And that's really why we're doing this. It's to encourage us to, to hear that the Lord Jesus has been building his church for 2,000 years and he's going to keep building it. The gates of hell are not, have not prevailed against the church and they will not prevail against the church. Now, and also to learn from, as I was saying right at the beginning, to learn from our older brothers and sisters, to hear uh, the voices of Christians across the ages from different times, different cultures, speaking to us again and teaching us from God's word. Uh, and so I hope these have been encouraging. If you want to know anything more about the particular areas or time periods we're covering, I can recommend you some uh, resources if you come and talk to me. Let's uh, put the timeline on the, the screen. This is where we've got to so far. We've been thinking about, um, uh, so far, we thought about uh, from the ascension of Jesus when the church sort of began when the giving of the, the Holy Spirit. We've thought about the emergence of the canon, how we uh, came to see the scriptures that we have for, for what they are, that they are the word of God. And we learned that it was because they, they attest to themselves, God witnesses to himself and his word, that these are uh, his words to his sheep. Uh, we've talked about the Council of Nicaea when we saw that uh, the Lord Jesus is affirmed as fully God and fully man, and that's the only way that salvation can work. And we've been thinking about the thinking of Augustine of Hippo, his name is behind me, um, uh, where he was teaching us really who we are, uh, that we are dead in our sins, and only the, the sovereign work of Jesus, the creator, the recreator, uh, can save us um, from uh, ourselves, save us from God's wrath. And I said last week that we're going to have a bit of a jump, really, uh, to the 16th century uh, Reformation. We're only going to scratch the surface of that. We've skipped over a huge chunk of church history, and we've skipped over some big characters, some big controversies, some brilliant stories. So sorry about that. We've missed learning about some of our really helpful and faithful older brothers and sisters, people like Bernard of Clairvaux, a man with a passion for the authority of Scripture, biblical view of salvation, people like Peter Waldo, who emphasized every member ministry, translated the Bible into common languages. People like Anselm of Canterbury, oh Anselm, who wrote a, a brilliant defense of why Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man so he could be our substitute and obey God when we fail. People like John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English, and people like Jan Hus, who emphasized the primary role of preaching. There's a great many men and women who embraced biblical teaching in the years we've skipped out. But by the time of the early 16th century, there was also a great deal of corruption and confusion in the church. And let me just highlight three ways that that manifests itself. Thanks, Matt. We can have that off now. Thanks. Um, the first was the rise of the papacy. That is, the increase in significance of the Pope, who is the Bishop of Rome. An early bit of church tradition held that Peter, the disciple Peter, later became bishop of the church in Rome. We've no real biblical evidence for that. It might have happened. Um, and the guys who held that post after Peter began to become quite influential. An early council, the Council of Chalcedon, was chaired very effectively and well by a guy called Leo, who was bishop of Rome. And gradually over time, the status of those bishops increased. People began to look to them for guidance and for help. And they started being called Pope, Pope Papa, Father, it's Latin. Uh, and they started, uh, the Pope started appealing to verses like the one you've got on your sheet. 
Now I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, Peter means rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the Pope said, look, Peter is being here given the keys of heaven. He is special. He is set apart. He is the rock on which Jesus is building his church. And the the logical step that they made was that those who came after Peter and sort of share his role also have that special role. You may have seen on Catholic churches, there's a picture of some keys. This is where this comes from. Now, we haven't got masses of time to explore why that's a pretty bad exegesis of Matthew 16. You just have to trust me, that's not great. Um, Matthew 18, if you want to read on in Matthew 18, Jesus says exactly the same thing to all of the disciples. So Peter actually isn't very special. Um, But suffice it to say that the popes began to get more and more powerful and have greater and greater status. Not all of them were bad by any means, but they began to be seen not as ordinary church leaders, but as wielders of real power, spiritual power, with a great deal more authority than you might think healthy. As well as spiritual power, though, the popes also started to wield political and secular power as the church and the state got closer and closer. That's what we see uh, in that stage of church history as well, the difficult marriage of church and state. On Christmas Day... 800 AD, the Pope Leo III crowned a guy called Charlemagne, who you may have heard of, as ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically Europe. So the Pope crowned the king. What does that mean? Well, at the time, the people all cried out together that Charlemagne had been crowned by God. God had crowned this king through the Pope. And so the state, it was declared at that point, derived its power and authority from the church. But of course that caused all sorts of difficulties because the state wasn't particularly happy with that arrangement. They didn't like to be a subordinate authority of the church and a great power struggle erupted between the secular authorities and the church authorities. For a time, the secular king chose the bishops. Another time, the bishops chose the king and no one could quite decide which one of those was right. And all of that controversy led at times to actual physical warfare. The popes became more and more embroiled in state affairs rather than in running the church. And this is particularly uh, true in the 15th century, in the 100 years running up to what we're going to be looking at tonight. At one point in the early 15th century, there were three popes all at once. They all excommunicated each other, which must have been awkward. Uh, Two of them went to war against each other physically fought against each other. Later on in the same century, one of the popes was tried for murder. His son had a load of, not his son, sorry, his successor, popes don't do that, no. But this one had a load of illegitimate children um, before he became pope. You're not really supposed to do that either. And one, a guy called Julius II, spent more time actually riding to war on horseback than actually dealing with church business. Um, They weren't great. Sum that up. Um, so there's a great deal of sort of moral corruption because of this difficult marriage of church and state and who has political power and what should the Pope be doing. But there's also a great deal of theological confusion. The status and the power held by the church, the institutional church and the popes had led to the development of what's called a sacramental theology. What does that mean? It means that it was thought that God's grace was channeled to people by certain church practices. 
The church had developed a system of seven sacraments, which they said were the means by which God channeled his grace. The means, actually, by which people were made holy from being in a state of sin. There were things like baptism, confirmation, communion, that kind of thing. All things that the church did for you. The church had gained this status as, as sort of the conduit of God's grace in a way. And, and there's something right about that, of course, that's, that's true. But they didn't see these things as just sort of helpful things to keep you going in your salvation. Really, these were the means of salvation. These were how you were saved. So people's salvation was being tied more and more to their involvement in these church practices, in the sacraments. The church wasn't just pointing people to trust in Jesus through its preaching. It was setting itself up as having a sort of storehouse of grace that it could distribute through the sacraments. It began to see grace as kind of a thing that you could collect and the church could give it out. And so your relationship with the church and your participation in these sacraments was really your salvation or not. The theology that was developed ended up getting halfway to our, our old friend or enemy Pelagius from last week. Remember that Pelagius said that mankind were born sinless and you could simply get right with God through their works. Well, the Roman Catholic Church at this point didn't agree with that. People were not born sinless. They agreed with Augustine about original sin and our inability to save ourselves. But that confusion about the power of the church and the power of the Pope and the, the role of the sacraments, some of which that we saw last week was sort of Augustine's fault, and the role of the Pope led them to think that although we can't save ourselves, we can do something. What can we do? We can go to church. We can take part in the sacraments. And through those efforts, we can receive grace and we can be fit for heaven. We can't do everything, but we can do something that's going to help us get to heaven. Let me sketch out for you what that looks like on the screen in this extraordinary diagram. Um, right. Okay. So here's how it works. I'm just going to talk like this. Um, what happens is you're born, uh, and that's a problem, because you're born into original sin. Well, how do you um, deal with that? Well, you get baptized. Remember what Augustine said? He slightly unhelpfully talked about baptism as sort of washing the stain of original sin off. That gets you into a state of grace. What happens if you die in that state of grace? Well, you're in, you're in luck. You're straight to heaven. Brilliant. Do not pass go. Do not collect 200 pounds. The trouble is you don't stay in the state of grace very long because every time you sin, you fall out of it. You fall out of friendship with God. And what happens when you die when you're in a state of sin? I'm afraid it's curtains. You're, you're in hell. Um, that is obviously very, very distressing to people. So, so what can be done about it? Well, now you've, you've got to get yourself to the church because what can you do in church? You can confess. You can confess your sins to your priest and he will uh, give you absolution. He will say, okay, your sins are forgiven. Um, but because there's still genuine sins, what you've got to do is you've got to do some penance. You've got to, whatever it is, say your Hail Marys or give some money to the poor or whatever it is. And once you've completed your penance, you're back to the state of grace. Great for about 20 minutes and then you're back here again. What happens if you die somewhere else in this cycle? Well, you've still, you haven't, you're not in a state of grace, but you're not absolutely as bad as you can be, but you've still got some sins to work off, so you end up going to purgatory, where purgatory, you, you end up paying, you, you spend some time in there paying for the rest of your sins, doing the penance you couldn't do because you're dead, and then you go to heaven. Okay. That's, that's the general idea. 
That's the sort of theology. It was called the Via Moderna, the modern way. Don't worry about that. Um, can someone tell me, from a point of view of how I feel, what's the difficulty with all this? How does this make me feel? There's a question you should never ask in a Bible study. How does it make me feel? Uncertain. Uncertain. Why, Matt? Yeah, at any time you could be in a state of sin without realizing. At any time, too, even if you've been given penance, you know, how do you know that you've done the right penance? How do you know that you've confessed all the sins you could possibly confess? How much penance is enough? How much confession is enough? What if I sin and I didn't realize it and I forgot to confess it and now I go to hell? Well, that's exactly the problem that was faced by a young German monk called Martin Luther. Just like Pelagius was beaten by Augustine, a man who despaired at his sin. So this system of theology, it's gone. That system of theology was overthrown by Luther's despair at sin. There's Luther, looking content. Uh, He was born, uh, Luther, in 1483, a place called Eisleben in Germany. Uh, And in 1501, he went to university in Erfurt, where he began training as a lawyer. His dad was a miner. He's very keen for his son to sort of better himself, very keen on being a lawyer. But in 1505, he was caught up in this horrible, terrific thunderstorm. Lightning struck like there, and he was thrown over here. He was absolutely terrified. And in his panic, he prayed to Saint Anne, who is the patron saint of miners, That's another aspect of the Roman Catholic theology that wasn't very helpful. We'll come back to that in a minute. You can pray to saints. But anyway, he prayed, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. He promised St. Anne that if he survived, he'd become a monk. And he did survive. So much of his father's annoyance, he jacked in law school and went to a monastery in Erfurt. But having been taught that, that cycle, that via moderna, Luther soon found himself living a life of absolute terror. He was absolutely terrified that he would end up dying in his sins and go to hell. So he would spend hours confessing his sins. He once confessed for six hours straight, dredging up every wrong thing he'd done, seeking to get absolution from it. Luther, as his role as a monk, was called one day to administer Mass, the Roman Catholic version of communion. Remember, the church at this time, well, and today in the Roman Catholic Church, didn't just see the Mass as a way of us being taught and reminded of the Gospel, as we would see communion. They saw it as a channel of God's grace. The bread and the wine were literally transformed to the body of blood, blood and blood of Jesus. In giving someone Mass, you are, you are handling God. You're being a conduit of Jesus to another human being. And as Luther gave his first Mass, he stopped halfway through and he couldn't finish it. He was trembling violently in sheer terror because he felt so unworthy of God and so unworthy to be in his presence. He didn't feel he could do this. In 1510, he went to Rome to climb Pilate's stairs, another kind of penance that these guys had basically made up. Apparently, there were holy steps that if you crawled up and prayed, and if you kissed every step as you went up, it would free your soul from purgatory. That was the idea. And he got to the top, and he stood up, and he said out loud, who knows if this is so? Who, I just don't, did that work? I don't know. Had he done enough, he could never be sure. His conscience kept accusing him with new sins, and so he's trapped in this cycle of sin, confession, penance, sin, confession, penance. The church was telling him that he had to do something, but he could never be sure if he'd done enough. However, Luther also had a passion for church reform. 
You see, Luther had begun to start taking the Bible and Bible study very seriously. That was because uh, the guy he was confessing to for six hours straight, who was a guy called Johann von Staupitz, he became a bit bored <laughs> and tired of Luther coming to him all hours of the day and night to confess his sins. And actually, Staupitz didn't seem to really buy into this Via Moderna kind of thing. He said to Luther, you're making religion too difficult. Christ has died to remit your sins. Stop trying to remit them yourself and simply love God. That's all that's needed. Staff is saying, don't worry about this. Just love God. Luther didn't believe him. He actually said he hated God because God was making him do all this stuff. And he couldn't see any way that he could love this God. So in the end... What Staupitz did was resign his post as Bible teacher at Wittenberg University and said, Luther, you're doing it, so that Luther would have to at least read the Bible for himself. That's quite a good trick, isn't it? Um, uh, Luther, uh, Luther said he gave him 15 reasons why he couldn't do it, mainly because I work so hard it's going to kill me. And Staupitz said to him, that's all right, there's plenty of work for clever people to do in heaven. So there you go. Anyway, um, a, you know, gentle, gentle encouragement, nudges. Um, so actually, Luther was now grappling with the Bible himself, and gradually Luther began to see the difference between what he was reading, particularly in the book of Romans, and what the church was teaching. As well as that, in 1516, a guy called Erasmus published a version of the New Testament in Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament. And before that, everyone was used to reading it in Latin, in an official translation that had been sanctioned by the church. And it became clear, as Luther read this Greek version of the New Testament, that there were some pretty dodgy translation errors that had led the church astray. For example, the Latin version of the Bible translates the Greek word for repent, which just literally means change your mind, as do penance. Work off your sin, that's a big difference. Um, It translates... Um, when it says in Luke's Gospel, uh, Mary um, highly favoured, blessed, they translated it as full of grace. And that's where the idea came from, that somehow there was this store of grace that could be given out to people. So there's big differences. And so Luther began to see some of the abuses and corruption in the church, and he was angry. And in particular, he was angry about the development of something called indulgences. Remember the cycle, the the Via Moderna. Any sins that you haven't fully paid for in this life through your penances, you have a chance, a second chance, to work it off in purgatory. It's a horrible place. It's sort of an outpost of hell on the way to heaven. And the church taught that time spent in purgatory could be measured in thousands or even millions of years. Now, what does that mean if a family member dies? It means that you are terrified because he or she could be in purgatory, suffering horrifically as they did penance for millennia. Now, obviously, that's just emotionally crippling. It's awful, isn't it? So the church said that there was something that could be done. Remember that the church had begun to see itself as a sort of a conduit of grace. It had funds, stores of grace that could be dispensed to people. And in particular, it said that certain Christians had been so godly in their lives that they'd done more than enough to get themselves to heaven, and so the extra grace they'd earn could be sort of shared around, sort of early Christian socialism. Uh, That was weird. Uh, Jesus was uh, one such person who'd done more than enough, fair enough, Um, but so had Mary, so had the saints. That's why you pray to them, you see, because they've got a bit of extra grace to go around. So the church had this storehouse of grace which they could use to sort of offset your poor mum's time in purgatory. 
the church could grant an indulgence. It could say, okay, your mum really deserved that million years in purgatory, horrible woman, but the Pope can do something about that. He can let her off. He can be indulgent. Let her off some of that time by offsetting it with St. Agnes's extra good works. Now, as Luther said, even though he was beginning to question that whole concept of penance and purgatory indulgences, he would have been okay with this if the Pope had simply given those indulgences away for free. But he didn't. The Pope sold them. A guy called Johann Tetzel was touring Europe, selling these indulgences. He was a brilliant salesman. He had charm, he had an easy patter, he had a little bit of a way with people, and he even had a jingle. Uh, he used to say this, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Let's go around singing this. What happened? Thousands of Christians gave him some money, thinking they were freeing their family from torment, and the Pope took the money and built St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which if you've been there, you'll know it's just incredibly ornate and very, very expensive. That's why he wanted to charge for the things. He wanted to build this basilica. Luther said uh, this uh, in one of his, uh, we'll come to where he said it in a minute, on the screen. Why doesn't the Pope liberate everyone from purgatory for the sake of love, a most holy thing, and because of the supreme necessity of their souls? This would be morally the best of all reasons. Meanwhile, he redeems innumerable souls for money, a most perishable thing with which to build St. Peter's Church, a very minor purpose. So, you know, if the Pope loved people and he can do this, why just wouldn't he do it? On the 31st of October, 1517, Luther wrote up his complaints against uh, the church, his 95 theses, 95 statements that he thought were true, that he wanted to prove, and he pinned them to the door of Wittenberg Castle Church. All he wanted to do at that point was to start an academic debate. He was still unsure himself about some of this stuff, but the theses were copied, printed, and sent all over Europe as people saw how liberating they were. That was number 82, what we just saw. Let's have a look at numbers 36 and 37. Any Christian whatsoever who is truly repentant enjoys plenary remission from penalty and guilt. All their sins are forgiven. And this is given him without letters of indulgence. Any true Christian whatsoever, living or dead, participates in all the benefits of Christ and the church. And this participation is granted to him by God without letters of indulgence. You can see how people who'd lived under that system for any number of years just thought, this is brilliant. It's exactly what I need. But even with these passions for reform, Luther at this point had not yet found comfort for his own soul. He taught through Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews at the university. That's a brilliant three to start with, isn't it? And he was about to teach through Psalms, but he still hit a stumbling block. He was still convinced that the standard that God held out in his law was so high that he could never hope to attain it. True. Uh, but he'd been trying to do it by his own efforts, as the church taught him. And he was never satisfied with his own efforts. And obviously the church's teaching was becoming increasingly worrying to him. But eventually he found relief in Romans in 1519. I've put it down here, quite a long quote here from his own words. I'd certainly been overcome with a great desire to understand St. Paul and his letter to the Romans, but what had hindered me thus far was that phrase in the first chapter, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. For I'd hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, 
which I'd been taught to understand philosophically in the sense of the formal or active righteousness by which God is righteous and punishes unrighteous sinners. Do you see? So he's saying, he sees righteousness of God and he thinks judgment, righteous judgment, right? Although I lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God, nor was I able to believe that I pleased him with my satisfaction. I did not love. In fact, I hated that righteous God that punished sinners. If not with silent blasphemy, then certainly with great murmuring. Thus I drove myself mad with a desperate, disturbed conscience, persistently pounding upon Paul, I love that phrase, in this passage, thirsting most ardently to know what he meant. At last, God being merciful, I began to understand that righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. This immediately made me feel as though I'd been born again and as though I'd entered through the open gates into paradise itself. From that moment, the whole face of Scripture appeared to me in a different light. And now, where I once had hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, so much I began to love and extol it as the sweetest of words, so that this passage in Paul became the very gate of paradise to me. He says afterwards in that little section that the next thing he did was read Augustine. The, the, the thing that we looked at last week, his Augustine's reply to Pelagius, and he was amazed to find that Augustine had figured this out hundreds of years ago. Um, anyway, there you go. Um, Luther realized that the Via Moderna, that cycle, is just not biblical. It's not what the Bible says about righteousness. Salvation righteousness doesn't come through our own efforts, nor, that's what Pelagius said, nor does it come through a combination of our efforts and our good works, nor does it come through the sacraments of the church, and certainly not through paying the Pope to build a church building. Salvation comes through faith in what God has done. He makes us right with him through grace by faith. The righteousness we have is one that is given to us as a gift. It is Christ's righteousness. The technical term is imputed to us. Our standing with God is based on Jesus standing with God, and his standing with God is perfect. We're united to Jesus, and we can have uh, righteousness with God that we don't earn. Luther was tried for heresy at um, the Diet of Worms, when I was younger, I thought it was the Diet of Worms. And I thought, why was he doing eating worms? But a Diet is a meeting and Worms is a town. So it's a Diet of Worms. Um, but then uh, he was completely, but sorry, by then, he was completely firm in his mind that he must go with what the Bible said, even if the church was saying something different. And at the end of the Diet, he was called on to recant everything he'd written. And he said this on the screen. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I've quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. See, his conscience is bound, captive to the word of God. He just can't say what the scriptures aren't saying. Luther left the Diet of Worms given 21 days to recant before he, became, he came under an imperial ban, effectively putting him out of the church and under a sentence of exile or death. This is actually where the story gets really interesting and involves a fake kidnapping and Luther living in a, in a castle under the fake name Sir George and riding around on horseback like a medieval knight. But that's a story for another bedtime, I'm afraid, children. Um, Luther's theology 
and his reforms caught on like wildfire in Europe. They were taken up by men like John Calvin and eventually led to the break between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, also called the Reformed or the Evangelical churches. And I'd love to spend a whole other session unpacking what this sentence says on your sheet we're not going to. But at the core of the Reformation theology is this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, to God's glory alone. We don't have time to go into great detail, but one thing I just want you to see is that to sound very familiar and natural given what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. At the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius and others declared that Jesus must be God because of the logic of salvation. Only Jesus, only God could recreate us in his image. So salvation must be in Christ alone. As we looked at the emergence of the canon, we saw that Christians recognize that scriptures are their own authority. No other authority can ultimately tell us what the scriptures are or what they say, not churches, not popes, the scriptures themselves. God must be his own witness. So ultimately, salvation is revealed in scripture alone. Augustine realized that the Bible taught us that we're so completely dead in our sins that salvation must come to us as a gift. We can't earn any of it. So salvation must be by grace alone, through faith alone. And in all of these three, four sessions, we've seen that because of all of this, God gets all the credit for my salvation. None of it comes to me, so salvation is to God's glory alone. The point is this. The Reformation was not new. It wasn't this brand new thing that no one else in the church ever believed before. Sometimes we can get a little bit stressed about that. And a lot of the time we speak about the Reformation rightly as just being a, a wonderful time of recapturing the biblical gospel. But we mustn't think that it was just awful before then, and for 1,600 years no one knew what the gospel was. This was nothing new. It can trace its heritage right back to the earliest stages of church history. Christians have always believed this. Jesus has always preserved true faith in his church, and of course, it's what the Bible says. Let me conclude with just a few implications of what we've been looking at. What is the ongoing relevance of all of this um, to today? Well, the first thing is, about assurance. This is what Luther found, this is what Augustine found. For Luther, the key thing that he ha had to uh, grapple with was that the righteousness that he had before God, the right standing before God, his phrase was an alien righteousness. The Roman Catholic Church taught that at least in part, your righteousness was yours. It belonged to you because of what Christ gave you the grace to be able to do the good works that pleased him. So at some level, my righteousness has something to do with me. And that's what stressed Luther out so much. Because he just couldn't, he couldn't live like that. He couldn't, he could never be sure how he'd, he hadn't done enough. And of course, that's right. If righteousness is anything to do with us, then we're going to end up with a lack of certainty, a lack of assurance. Because of course, we've never done enough. But what Luther saw was that righteousness was alien given to us, someone else's. It's Jesus's and he gives it to me by grace. And so salvation is completely taken out of our hands. It has nothing to do with me. Why am I saved? Because, I don't know, because Jesus has given me his righteousness. My faith, Ephesians 2, is a gift of God. I didn't even earn my faith. It is all out of my hands. And what does that mean? That means I can have complete assurance in my standing before God because it had nothing to do with me. Jesus, can, God can no more reject me now than he can reject Jesus because my standing with him is bound up with Jesus standing with him and that standing will not change. 
I know for some of you, this, this theology, it was developed and thought about. This is where um, our theology of predestination comes from an election. It, it's from the, well, it's from the Bible, uh, but, it's, but it's bound up in these ideas that we can't save ourselves, we can't do anything, we're dead in our sins. The only way we can be saved is for God to do it and for God to choose us before we choose him and for God to have planned to choose us from the very beginning so that his purposes work out perfectly. And I know for some of you, I know for me, when I was younger, that really rocked my assurance because I was working out through and thinking, well, hang on, does that mean that oh, how can God create people and then send them to hell? And what about all the people that don't hear and all the rest of it? It rocked me a bit. But the whole point of this, the whole, the Bible's view of predestination, election, and everything, it's given to us as a grounds for assurance. It means that God has set his love on you and you had absolutely nothing to do with it, so you can't stuff it up. Rejoice in it, enjoy it. That's what these uh, doctrines teach us. Second implication is about authority. The big clash between Protestant and Roman Catholic teaching is really a question of authority. It's a question of who teaches us uh, who God is and what the gospel is. There is always danger when some authority intervenes between us and scripture, which is what over time the church had begun to do and the popes had begun to do. They had set themselves up as a rival authority uh, to scripture. They always claim they're interpreting scripture, but of course, once you start putting some the words of men on the same level as scripture, they're going to start coming into conflict, and you're likely to be going with the words of men rather than the words of scripture, because they're there talking to you and persuading you, and it's harder to argue with. What does that mean? That means that as a church, as Christians, we must have that authority too. We must be always going back to the Bible, back to scripture, to reform our doctrine, our life, and our practices based on what we read. That's why we spend so much time in the Bible at Moorlands. That's why we preach consecutively through books of the Bible rather than just, we do a bit of systematic teaching, but what we want to do is let the Bible set the agenda so that we have to confront stuff in there that we don't really like and let it have authority over us and let it change us. The third uh, implication I'm going to skip, and we're going to pray uh, and thank God that he has saved us, not by works, not by sacraments, not by money, not by anything we've done, but by grace alone. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you have done for us what we could never do ourselves, that you've saved us from death. And we uh, thank you that has nothing to do with us that our salvation is bound up in what Christ has done, in his righteousness, in his obedience, in his sacrifice for sin once for all. Thank you that we are justified and set right before you through faith alone, and that faith is a gift of you, that we contribute nothing to our salvation. Please, would that liberate us from fear, would it liberate us from anxiety of thinking, that we haven't done enough. Please teach us again and again from your word that we can't possibly do enough, but that Jesus has done enough and that we can trust and rely on him. And please, would we as a church be um, a a people of God who are devoted to your word, uh, devoted to listening to your word, submitting ourselves to your authority so that you by your spirit may reform us in our belief, in what we uh, think, in what we do, in how we live. Father, please keep teaching us. And please keep being merciful because we desperately need it. In Jesus' name, amen.